0: Thank you, Amber, for playing, and welcome to Grace Reformed Baptist Church, one of the noisiest, friendliest churches around. I think it's wonderful to see such a lively group of people, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and we truly are a family. And you don't find that with a lot of churches, especially if you're at a 1,000 to 2,000 member church, and I'm... Speaking of that, sometimes people ask me, well, how big is your church? And I like to say, well, between uh, four and 500. And they look at me, that big? I said, no, you know, 70. No, 9, 10, up to 70. Um, it's like size of the church doesn't matter. Our Lord is eternal, infinite, and our hearts are big because of him. Just a few announcements, there is choir practice after the service today in the cottage, and in the bulletin, the ladies' Bible study is on hiatus until May, and you'll notice that there's a picnic scheduled for next week. The location is to be determined. We are waiting on governmental officials, so I will try to send out an email of where the the location will be, and if the Nelsons want to volunteer Reformation Farms, they'll get no objection from me. Didn't see that coming,
1: did you? And <laughs> <laughs> wash it around here, learn something new every day, that's for sure. I thought I would do a reading from Psalm 139, and uh, I didn't um, pre-warn the folks and hopefully I won't uh, cause too much embarrassment or concern but I, I really I really was um, touched this week with the um, response to a very difficult situation by the Hargraves uh, who had us pray and communicated to us and it reminded me of the sanctity of life and beyond that the the spiritual growth of our people to be able to um, grieve but not without hope. And I I thank Elena for uh, sending the memo out to the church and to have us pray. I know it can be a delicate and difficult situation. People handle it in different ways uh, for sure, but uh, God has a purpose for all things. We don't know what his purposes are other than what he has revealed in his word. But we do know that Uh, All things do work together for good to those that love God, who are the called according to his purpose. And so we must be reminded of that. Uh, If you didn't get the memo that was sent out, didn't happen to read it, I'll go ahead and read it for you now in preparation then for us to read Psalm 139 and to be reminded about what God has created human life. Her memo reads this way in thanking the church for your prayers at this difficult time. The Lord was gracious. I was able to miscarry our baby girl at home without any interventions. Even at such a small size, it was plain to see that she was fearfully and wonderfully made. We grieve what we had hoped would be, but we do not grieve without hope. We decided to Name our little girl Anastasia Rose Hargraves. Anastasia means resurrection in Greek. Rose is a family name, and we had been wanting to use. We we thought Anastasia was fitting because we found out our baby had passed on Good Friday. And the verse that I had been teaching the kids that week was John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, "I am the resurrection and the life." Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Uh, I really appreciate that, and I, I'm I'm sorry if it causes additional concerns. But we we um, hope and grieve both with you, and it's a good reminder about the importance of life, and particularly in the world in which we which we live, and our young people need to understand that too. There. Actually, changing the definition now, attempting to of uh, when uh, of the idea of conception, because we have argued often that life begins at conception. Now they want to determine; uh, they want to redefine conception as viability, and um, you know it it begins at the beginning and when God gives it. And I, I my own own anecdote here is simply that we we went for. Ten years without having another child and really didn't understand why not and then all of a sudden our window was closing and we said well we probably need to do something about that and we sought medical help and found out uh, some things that needed to be done and took care of that and God was gracious and gave us uh, our second child and when we walked out of the physician's office who confirmed that Uh, I remember holding my wife's hand and thinking they were really uh, challenging us because of our age and that this would be a high-risk pregnancy and so forth. And so we thought, well, do we tell? We had been asking folks to pray. Do, Do we just wait or do we tell them now? And... I had a bit of epiphany, (laughs) at least in my own mind, and that is um, we will celebrate life for as long as God gives it to us, you know. And that changed my thinking experientially, uh, that we would celebrate life. And it went on even with later on in the pregnancy where the physicians were so concerned because, you know, we're so old at that point, (laughs) (laughs) I know I felt like Abraham with Sarah but I digress and uh, they said well we've got to do all this testing and so I asked well well, why and in case there's something wrong I said well will your testing be able to help with anything oh no it's just so that you'll no. And I told him, we're going to keep it. Could it harm him? Yeah. I said, we're keeping it. However long God gives it to us, and in whatever form or shape, because God does all things for our good and his glory, and we just need to trust him for it. And it was a good reminder of that. And, and again, I, I don't mean to, to bring out uh embarrassment I really it just really touched my heart brought a lot of memory and I think it's helpful for the church to be reminded from time to time of the value of all human life from the very first to the very end all of it because only mankind is made in the image of God and we need to recognize that and that's what gives us value is the imaging forth yes there is sin, a cursed world, and disease and death happens. That's for sure. But, um, but God is good and God is gracious, and He's redemptive, and we have to look forward to ultimately the newness of life that is in Christ Jesus and the beautiful resurrection. But so, let me read this Psalm one thirty nine for you. To remind us of what God thinks of His creation. Here's David, Psalm 139. O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind, and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So where shall I go from your spirit? Where will I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. We need to teach our children who God is and how he relates to his creation. In verse 13, David reflects, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast the sum of them! If I would count them, they, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. And then here is an imprecatory response to those that would actually reject God and his beautiful creation in the ways that he has formed it. David prays, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And then he turns and examines his own heart. He eats everything that is against God. And then he examines his own heart to see if there is some hatred that he has towards God. And in this wonderful way it's expressed in a great way to, to end here. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me to the way of everlasting. I hope that is your prayer today. Let me give you an opportunity to do that very thing. Call on God to search your own heart and to know your heart. Take a moment privately where you're at and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your holy word. It reveals to us who you are. I pray that you'd continue to give us faith to truly believe and to truly trust you, whether we're going through the valley of the shadow of death or whether we're on the mountaintop. I pray, Father, we would recognize that you're always with us, that we are not going to flee from your presence, that you know us intimately even more than we know ourselves. So, Lord, we do call you to search our own heart and make it known to us those things that are not in accordance with who you are. Whether it's our lack of of belief and trust, whether it's our anxiety because of whatever might be going on, I pray that we would find perfect peace in you and be empowered to do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. Test our own thoughts that we might not just look outward, but look truly inward. Bring us to repentance and faith, and bring us to faithfulness. Thank you for granting us the way of everlasting life, an incredible reunion of joy in Christ, particularly with all of those that we love and had wanted to love and to truly know. But you know, and we know you, and that is sufficient. We look forward for a day in which we will stand in your presence in the fullness of joy. In this time span that you have given to us here on earth, I pray that truly from the heart we would respond in great faith and worship and adoration and trust to you. May we encourage one another to do those things and lead each other into ways of everlasting life. Life because Jesus Christ is truly the resurrection and the life. We pray this in his name. Amen.
2: Good morning. Let's take our hymn books and stand. Let's turn to number 339. We will recite the responsive reading before we sing Standing on the Promises. Hebrews 10.23 says, He who promised is faithful. 339. Let's begin. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. I will delight in your statutes. Your word, your word is forever. It is firmly fixed in heaven. By keeping your word. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. For everyone. Let my cry reach you, Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. The
1: entirety of your word is true, and all your righteous judgments endure forever. I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways.
2: Open my eyes so that I may see wonderful things in you law. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Amen. 613. 613. Ring the bells of heaven. Luke 15, 10. There is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Amen. 108, the wonder of it all. What is man that you care for him? Hebrews 2, 6.
3: It is wonderful. Good morning, church. The passage that we'll be reading today is Acts chapter 6. You can find this on page 914 of your pew Bible. We'll be reading as usual in the English Standard Version. Our passage today has two parts. The first one, a divinely inspired narrative of some problem resolution amongst the early church. And part two, one of those men who was used to help in that being unjustly arrested and tried and ultimately it would lead to his death as the first martyr after his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I believe you'll see many parallels in his false trial and the Lord's as we read. Let us read the Word of God together. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer Into the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray. Father, please help us to be your faithful body here on earth until you return. Please help us to work together in love and humility to address the daily business of the church, considering one another as more important than ourselves, and not only looking out for our own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Please let the result of this be the faithful proclamation of the word, both from the pulpit and from everyone's own mouths, as you place us intentionally in different places in the world to shine as lights in the darkness. Help us to be like Isaiah, knowing that though many will reject your truth, you have reserved a holy seed, that though you will cut down most of the tree, you will cause a stump to remain the precious few that you will cause to enter by the narrow gate and walk the hard road that leads to life. Please help us to be faithful with the offering gathered today and use it for the advance of your kingdom. When we are faced with persecution, please help us not to revile in return, but to entrust ourselves to you, our faithful and mighty God, and to be willing sacrifices ready to suffer for doing good. It's in the glorious name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen.
2: Thank you, Amber. Let's stand once more and take our hymn books. Turn to number 620. We sung this uh, hymn, I guess, a couple months ago, and so I wanted to bring it back to our memory. Jesus is the song. Ephesians 5:19, singing and making to the Lord music in your heart. 620. <laughs>
1: Thank you, Blake, Amber, and church, and I pray that indeed is your testimony as well, that Jesus is indeed life, love, and joy, and he enables us to sing of his abundant praise. I've enjoyed going through this first chapter of Acts, and I'll step away from it and go back to Hebrews 7 in just a bit. I'll probably at least have one more week on this, and I don't know, maybe two. It's kind of difficult sometimes when you open up a text like this. My objective was to talk about essentially the aftermath of the resurrection, since we went through Holy Week, talked about the triumphal entry of Christ, on the first day of the week, which we call Sunday, Palm Sunday, and then, of course, his resurrection on Easter Sunday, and then what happened afterwards. Um, Luke records that for us in the first chapter of Acts, and then he continues on and talks about what the church does as we're reading through Acts in our worship service. Most of us are certainly aware of the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is helpful to be reminded of it, because really this event can't be overstated, and that's why I don't mind continually addressing it even now. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians fifteen, seventeen, if you remember, if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile. And the reason that your faith would be futile is that you are still in your sin. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And here is the hope. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And and again, I just love this beautiful way to describe those that are in Christ. Christ. We talk sometimes about their passed away or died, and I understand that's the language we use. But, but in the Bible, this is the way Paul would refer to those in Christ. They're simply asleep. It's a way of expressing the idea they're waiting to be raised from the dead. This resurrection is a, is a cherished thought. It's a cherished thought for the saints who have certainly been given eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts then to, to respond to the significance of what is being said. The significance of the resurrection is really, as I've addressed already, isn't so much the matter of a bunch of evidential facts. They're there, of course, because it happened, but the significance of it comes to the believer by faith. Faith is simply a response to God's redemptive work in the heart of man. It isn't something that we can just quantify. We call people to simply believe. We can't make them do that. We can't change their mind in that way, but God can. Because God gives them eyes, if you will, by analogy, ears and a heart to respond. It's the work, the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit. Now, last week I did mention, though, when Christ rose from the dead, he didn't immediately go back to sit on the majesty on high. He had some more work to do, and that is he needed to reassure and to build up his disciples. He gave them many proofs of his resurrection. You'll find that in verse 3 in Acts chapter 1. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God, which we'll get into today. This post-resurrection appearance that Jesus makes is not just once, it's not just twice, but notice the text here in verse 3, it's during this 40-day period. He demonstrates that he has been physically risen from the dead. Paul would say, and I'll read it for you in 1 Corinthians fifteen five, that Jesus appeared to Cephas, this is Peter, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at at one time. Remember, he tells them to go to Galilee. That's probably where it took place. And he said, most of whom are, are still alive, though some have, and here's the phrase again, fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Jesus had a special resurrection, post resurrection appearance to the Apostle Paul, so that he indeed would be an apostle to the Gentiles, as we'll learn later. But I noted last week that in all of these appearances, and there's multiple, many of which are not really recorded in Scripture but it's many over a period of time, that these proofs are only to believers. They're only to those that are redeemed. And I think one of the reasons he does that is demonstrating his grace. Because to reject the risen Lord would only bring about further condemnation. And that's a great warning to anyone that would reject Jesus Christ. There is no other way of salvation, and to reject Him brings about great judgment. So in His post-resurrection appearances, He is merciful to those who were actually in rebellion against Him. He doesn't make them more guilty, because no doubt they would call out once again to crucify Him. But if you also notice here I'm in verse 3 of Acts before we read this in its context just picking up from last week one other detail and notice here that this post-resurrection appearance is not only to just believers but it's but it's also over a period of time as I mentioned 40 days this 40 days is just an expression not of counting each particular day, but it's sort of like I was there for a month is how we would say something to that order. It's a long period of time. It's more than a day. It's more than several days. It's more than a week. It's more than several weeks. It's described here by their idiomatic expression of 40 days. All of the appearances that you'll find recorded in Scripture indicate that they were on the first day of the week that is, Sunday, marking, again, a special change in which God's people would gather not to remember a Sabbath rest, but to find the reality in the substance of Jesus Christ, who is our rest, and on Him we worship then on this day, and it's described in the New Testament as then the Lord's Day. We call it Sunday. It's a day in which those that are in Christ set aside their, their regular and routine responsibilities as much as possible to be able to gather together and worship Jesus Christ, remembering each week the resurrection. Because without it, all of this is futile. So we gather together and one of the uh, emphasis that we make is through a living Christ. And by doing so, in gathering together collectively to worship Christ, we we sing together, we pray together, we hear God's word together, and we encourage one another in Christ. It is our responsibility to do so and not to neglect that, as Hebrews 10.25 would make clear. So let's look at this text then in its context, and I'm going to emphasize this concept of the kingdom that Jesus spoke about here in, Luke, in, uh, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, but let's read it and we'll go through the first 11 verses. Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, he's talking about the gospel, Luke's gospel. He says, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days. And and here's what he did. He's speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking on. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were still gazing into heaven as... He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we would hear from Christ today, and I pray that we would hear those words, the teaching that has been given to us, your inspired word that indeed may challenge our hearts and cause us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. The post-resurrection appearances that Jesus made, as I stated is there to his disciples? I would say it reinforces to them the mission to which he called them. You find that at the end, close of Matthew in his gospel, Matthew 28, quite clearly, and that is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the, the foundation of the mission of the church, of what we're called to do right now. That is to make disciples of all nations. That is to make followers of Jesus Christ. And by the way, let me just add here so that you understand, he, he, each person might be called in different ways in which they're going to function. There will be some that will go to foreign lands and be missionaries, if you will, like we would describe it, or to different places and engage in different ways with different people. But don't forget the very foundation of missions, by the way, is in the home. Missions begin right there. it, it is something that can't be neglected and the significance and and importance of it to teach the children from the very beginning the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation to hear the father's and the mother's voice as they communicate god's truth so so don't if God calls you to the mission field or to some other specific ministry like that that is noted and people. Uh, recognize and so forth. I understand that. But it, there is a primary purpose right in your own home to make disciples there. And then to move on. And of course, in our relationships with one another, to encourage one another, to follow Christ is what a disciple means, to engage with one another as well. Jesus gave them proof in his appearances to help provide that assurance of this mission that he has called us to. In verse 3, as, I, as I've as i mentioned. But notice here, as he talks about these proofs that he gives to his disciples over 40 days, what is he talking about to them? And you see that phrase? He's, in verse 3 of Luke 1, or, or Acts uh one, I don't know why I wrote the word Luke, sorry. Acts 1, 3. He is speaking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. He continues to speak about the kingdom of God. His ministry began that way, if you remember. At first, there was an announcement by John the Baptist who provides a transition between the Old Covenant and the New. He calls on the people, Matthew 3, 2, to repent for, what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus' first sermon, then, you'll find in the next chapter in Matthew four seventeen, Jesus begins to preach or proclaim, if you will, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This expectation. sends the excitement in the air as Jesus teaches them about the reality of the kingdom. And he reminds his disciples of their call as subjects to his kingdom, the mission which he has given them to accomplish. He admonishes them, by the way, we'll see in our text as well, to be patient. It is a prescription which we need today. And there's a sense in which we're waiting for this kingdom of God. It is both now and not yet. And I'll unfold that in the text to some degree. Simply by looking first at a brief explanation of what this kingdom is that he's speaking about and those expectations that his people have and then finally, the establishment of the kingdom itself. So look here at verse 6, our focus. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And what is Jesus' response about the kingdom? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, they are really excited about the establishment of this kingdom. But they don't understand it, and they need some explanation of it. It isn't that Jesus didn't explain it. It's just that, unlike us, they're really hard to to listen to. Uh, they, they didn't pay as much attention. It isn't as clear, I understand. And so he then will continue, even in his post-resurrection appearances, to speak about that, that is, to continue to teach and to explain it. One of the explanations, and there are many in the Gospels, but let's go to Luke chapter 19, and here you have an explanation of the kingdom of God. And he does so by a parable. A parable is simply a story or an analogy. And now when you hear a story or an analogy, you can't make everything fit. But the, the essential ideas do fit. If it fit perfectly, it wouldn't be a story or an analogy, if you understand. So in any case. Verse 11 in Luke 19, if you want to drop down, here he is explaining, that is Jesus explaining this idea about the kingdom to which he calls people to repent and to which he continues to teach in the post-resurrection appearances. Verse 11 of Luke 19, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So they had their idea and imagination of what it would be. No wonder all that took place in, on Palm Sunday. But Jesus is then going to explain how this kingdom will unfold in the story. He's going to teach his disciples that they need to be patient and to wait for the fullness of the kingdom to be realized this waiting by the way isn't sitting and doing nothing the waiting is a trust patience in the the assurance of what god will accomplish and engaging and fulfilling the mission to which he has called us in this interim look at verse 12 and here's where this story begins, this analogy, this parable. And I'll just walk through it to some degree. He said, therefore, a nobleman, and this is the example, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. You get the picture already, right? He's going to receive a kingdom and he's going to come. He's calling ten of his servants and he gave them ten minas and said to them, And and note this, you can underline this in verse 13, engage in business until I come. That explains, by the way, how to wait. So so we're waiting, but it, it doesn't mean we're not doing anything. We're engaging in business, if you will, and the business to which the church has been called is this, making disciples of all peoples. But note verse 14, the response to this call of this realization of this kingdom. His citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. Well, well, you already know what this is about. This is precisely what happened within that week in Jerusalem. By the way, MacArthur provides an interesting anecdote here where this is also played out historically that they would have been aware of in their own environment. In fact, this is essentially what happened to Archelaus. He was the son of Herod the Great, you know, the one that built the temple, refurbished it, and so forth. Archelaus went to Rome to be made tetrarch of Judea and a delegation of Jews traveled to Rome with a protest to Caesar Augustus. He refused their complaint and made Archelaus king anyway. Archelaus subsequently built his palace in Jericho, not far from where Jesus told this parable. Archelaus' rule was so inept and so despotic that Rome quickly replaced him with succession of a procurator, procurator, sorry, I'm having trouble with that word, procurator, of whom Pontius Pilate was the, was the fifth. With this parable, Jesus warned that the Jews were about to do the same thing in a spiritual sense to their Messiah. So the reality, they, they, had, they had done this very thing and by way of an example, Jesus was telling them they're about to reject their very king. Verse 15, back in our text, when he returned, having received the kingdom, illustrating his, his coming, he ordered the servants to whom he had given money, and we would think of this as a second coming at this point, but he had given the money to be called to him that they might know that what they had gained by doing business. Remember, what did he call them to do in the parable? To do their business, to engage in what they're supposed to do. In our case, the spiritual sense is to do what? To make disciples. So that's what's an illustration of. The first came before him and saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. In other words, the gift that you've given him, the the, the resources, the, the stewardship that he has, it he's he's utilized it. He's engaged, and it's had some benefit. And then he said, well done, the good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you have authority over ten cities. And the second came, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Again, the the point of this is, and don't get caught up in the numbers game so much. But the point is, the, these servants were faithful with what they received. They engaged in business and they received a reward. Note here, the reward, and this is the fact I think that needs to be emphasized is greater than what, what was uh, initially given. Verse 20. Then another came. Lord, here is your mind I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank At my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. It illustrates those who are not faithful will lose out the reward which they are promised to receive. And he says this in his illustration here, verse 26, I tell you this, that everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these my enemies of mine who didn't want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. All of this illustrates this finality of this kingdom that is coming. That's what he's trying to explain in story form. And that is, those that he has called to be his servants are to be faithful with what God has given. And if you're not, you will lose the reward to which you could have otherwise had. What is this precise reward? I don't know. Some have described it as the capacity to... um, increased capacity to enjoy the fullness of God. We're not explained that. But the point is there there will be a loss in that sense of reward in what you would otherwise have. The judgment here in verse twenty seven, though, refers to those that would reject him. In the in the manifestation in the fullness of his kingdom that he's speaking about and this gives a grave warning. Anyone who rejects him will be like these wicked servants who didn't want him to rule over them. Fine, you don't want it? You will be slaughtered. That's the point. It sounds like pretty much like hellfire and brimstone preaching, doesn't it? But it's not from me. This is from Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And so here is an explanation of the kingdom. For those that are subjects of Christ, what are we called to do? Well, to engage in what he has given us to do. And in summary form, it would be simply to make disciples of all nations. Doing so is going to bring about a great reward or an increased capacity to enjoy the very presence of God in the fullness of of him and not doing so is, is going to be a, a loss of what you might otherwise have enjoyed. Rejecting him is certain judgment at his appearing. I want to move on then, not this brief explanation of the kingdom that he taught, but he also addressed this expectation of the kingdom. They were in a fervor pitch, as I've already mentioned, about thinking about this kingdom that was going to come. And this is why on Palm Sunday you had all of this hosanna and praises and worship that went on as Jesus came into Jerusalem. The Old Testament had spoken about a king who would come, a Messiah, a Deliverer a savior, a rescuer, if you will. And that was firmly fixed on the minds of the people, even those who didn't call out crucify him and didn't reject him. One of the examples I think we touched on last week from Luke 24 was from those followers of Christ on the road to Emmaus. Their expression and thoughts, the depression in their heart was expressed this way we We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third thing third day since all these things had happened, <laughs> and that's found in luke twenty four twenty one I think Luke purposely throws that third day issue in there because we understand, of course, the rest of the story that they didn't quite get at the moment. But they did have this expectation that a Messiah would come, a king would come, and that there would be an establishment of the kingdom. Jesus has explained this kingdom and and how it's going to come about, but they were excited that indeed it would and had imagined it differently than it actually is and we'll look at a further explanation of that in just a moment but just you don't have to turn there i'll just read several old testament texts so you can get the mindset of the people of that day numbers of old testament prophets talked about a kingdom of god it was a continual and constant theme Here's some references, for example, in Daniel. In those days, kings of the kings, in those, I'm sorry, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring to an end And it shall stand forever. What will stand forever? The kingdom of God. What will break? All other kingdoms. So you see the mentality when the Messiah comes, they're thinking all other kingdoms are going to be immediately destroyed. That's Daniel 2, 44. Here's another one. Micah 4, 7. And the lame... I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord, that's Yahweh, will reign over them. That's the kingdom concept in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore, an eternal kingdom. Zechariah fourteen nine, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the, the Lord, that is Yahweh, will be one and his name one. Habakkuk two fourteen. For the earth will be then filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is what they had expected. That was their idea. And of course, the Old Testament prophets talked about it. It is true. This will indeed Occur. But what they didn't know was how this then kingdom would find its fulfillment, how it would unfold, how it would come about. And for that, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. And here you have an explanation given by Jesus Christ. It helps us moderate our expectations of the kingdom itself, and it should for them as well. So how would it come about? Verse 20, if you drop down to there, Luke 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come. Of course it will come. It's been prophesied about. It's on their mind. And here is Jesus' answer, and it is profound. He's talking about the initiation of the kingdom, the beginning, not the end. The kingdom of God is not coming, he says, in ways that can be observed. Remember, what they say, oh, look, it's here or there. Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What is he saying? The initial aspects of the kingdom of God that he's teaching and preaching is that the kingdom would be first established in the hearts of the redeemed. They're going to reject their own supposed autonomy and submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. I said last week, I think, if I didn't, I'll say it this week, in, in our prayer, in our model prayer that Jesus taught us is what? Thy kingdom come. That's what we pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, So there's a prayer for the finality of it, but it begins with each individual believer who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the initiation of the kingdom. That's the establishment of the kingdom in the hearts of men. Collectively, then, as those who are subjects of Jesus Christ our Lord gather together collectively. They function as his kingdom, as we submit to his sovereignty and his headship of the gathered saints called the church. That's how it begins. It must begin this way because Christ must redeem those who would inhabit the kingdom. He must atone for their sin. Otherwise, they would not be in the kingdom. They wouldn't be accepted by it and be a subject of Christ. They would be among those who would reject him and be subject to what? Judgment and not reward. Drop down to verse 22 if you're still in Luke 17. So he says to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And you will say, and and I understand that desire there and I think it's a good desire. We want to see Christ in his fullness of his kingdom reigning over the earth as the Old Testament prophets talked about, king in that day, and you'll long for that, but you might not see it, disciples. And you'll hear different people say this, verse 23, look there, or look here, don't go follow them. These are false prophets and false teachers. For as the lightning flashes and the lights up in the sky from one side to the other so will the son of man be in his day what is he saying you're not going to miss it luke has said that as well right the angelic beings these messengers said why are you standing there staring as if you're going to miss something you're not so what do you do just engage in what he's called you to do trust him that he will come oh long for christ pray For that, for sure. But you're not going to miss his kingdom when it comes. No one will. Jesus explained to his disciples that he's going to have to be rejected. Look at verse 25 of Luke 17. He has to be rejected by this generation. And we know why. Because he must suffer and die and atone for our sins. Otherwise, we cannot be subjects of his kingdom. And he explains it in verse 26. Just as the days of Noah, so it would be the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planning and building. But on the day when Lot Went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. No one's going to miss it. You know, we, we make jokes about missing his kingdom coming. We won't miss it. His kingdom has come, it is now. It is now in the hearts of those who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. It is now in the redemption of his people, saints. It is not yet in the fact that it hasn't been fully established on earth, but it will. And when it is established, all other kingdoms will be vanquished, they'll all be destroyed. Don't put your hopes in. Lesser things. Put it in Christ. I'll just read this for you and then we'll get into the establishment of this kingdom as far as when. But I just want to read this text for you. It finishes out first Corinthians fifteen and verse twenty four. And it just and, and note the kingdom language that's mentioned, and I'll read it for you. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority, every power. That's something that needs to be known, understood, and believed. For he will reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy is to be destroyed is death. You have an enemy, and Christ has come to vanquish that enemy, death. When will all this happen? And that's something that is on our minds often. We pray for Jesus to come. We pray for his kingdom to come. We pray for him to subdue evil not just suppress it, but remove it. And if you've ever dealt with the results of the curse, which we all have, you can think of many times in which you wish that was just gone. So when's it going to happen? Well, he tells us. Verse 7 in Acts 1. That way, you'll know. We want to know. It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. And you need to know that passage because there have been a lot of people that have gone off the theological rails because they don't believe the words of Christ. It is not for you to know this. And the, the idea of fixed by his own authority, again, is God's decree, his plan that is outworking. Yes, he has revealed some of that in his word, but not all, and we don't know precisely. But as he's already said, you're not going to miss it. You're going to know these times and seasons are events concerning this earthly reign. The call is simply this, beloved, in shorthand, we're not looking for various signs. Remember, Jesus would say that a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after signs. We seek after Christ, our Savior. We live by faith. And as I mentioned, there are numbers of heretical groups that have advanced this notion of establishing some sort the kingdom on earth and providing a time when you hear that you know that you're going to go astray an example of that is one, one some more recent somewhat ex, somewhat recent examples it was back in 1844 <laughs> but it was in america william M- miller led a group known as the R- miller miller He said the Lord was coming in October of 1844 and if you're alive today you know that didn't happen. That was called the Great Disappointment. But that movement didn't stop. Instead they just twisted the word of God even more to try to make it fit into their ideology and took on a a, a woman by the name of Ellen G. White who kept the group together and said, well, he returned, but it was in a spiritual way and we weren't quite ready for them and so now we need to get ready and none of that's in Scripture. In fact, I'll tell you what's in Scripture if you want to know. It's, it's back, that text we just read, It let me see, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons. That, that's the that's Scripture. I remember growing up, how Lindsay wrote this book about the late great planet Earth. Now, there are some good things about some of that that got people to think about the return of Christ. The bad thing is, he predicted he would come in 1988, and um, I think he missed that. There was another guy that wrote 88 Reasons Why the Lord is Coming in 1988. And he sold four and a half million copies of that book. And then the next year, the Trinity Broadcasting still kept the guy on air. I don't know why. You should have just looked at here in Acts 1-7. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. There are many more people who have predicted. I just threw those out. And there's many more that will. Here's the deal. It's not for you. Don't listen to them. They may have good intentions, and many of them do. They, they might want to encourage you to, to get your house in order. But that's not what Christ has called us to do. Christ has spoken about his kingdom, called us to be his subjects, to engage in the work that he has given us to do. And when it's time he'll let us know and you won't miss it you won't need to set an alarm clock or any kind of date you'll be waking up even if you're dead it's called the resurrection i'll finish with this we could go on but i just want you to see the text jump to second peter chapter three because here we have some disclosure of how this works out Jesus will establish his kingdom on earth when he's ready. And I would argue the time, if you want to know, it's when the last of the elect have been called into his kingdom. You see, see, the kingdom is going to be filled with all that he has been given. And he's going to bring them all in. Some of them, at this point, I don't know. It, it could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be a hundred years from now, I have no idea. But I do know one thing, he is patient and he has called us something to do in the meantime to wait for his return by engaging what he has called us to do to make disciples who are then subjects of a benevolent king. If you're in Second Peter, look at verse, in chapter 3, Peter's going to talk about these last days. And he he says he's writing to you, beloved, that's to the church. In both of them, I'm stirring you up a sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing that, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? In other words, they reject the Messiah. They don't believe anything you say about it. And so they'll scoff and say, well, where is he at? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the very beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water the word of God. And that by means these The world that existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It would be a day in which the fullness of his kingdom will be made known, and it will result, one of the results is the destruction of the ungodly. But don't overlook this fact, this is verse 8, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now don't get your calculator out to figure out anything. That's what this is not for. Remember, it's not for you to sit there and figure this out mathematically and find a particular day. The point is, this is just an expression to say God doesn't operate on our timetable. He has his own. And... If you measured eternity with our finite existence, we're just like an immeasurable amount, even though it seems like it's forever. But what should you know then? That God has his own timetable, and he doesn't count time the way we do. But know this about God, verse 9. He isn't slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Well, if you're impatient, (laughs) that person is really slow that's in front of me, and I need to get to church, and they're affecting my attitude. God doesn't operate that way. We do. Instead, how does God operate? Notice here, he's patient you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance that's where I'm getting at the last of the beloved he's talking to the beloved those that are in Christ he is patient and he's going to wait to bring in the very last one we don't know when that will be He hasn't declared that. He hasn't given that for us. Instead, he's just called us, beloved, then to trust him that he knows what he's doing. And then to believe him, because here it's expressed in a similar way. But the day of the Lord, it's going to come like a thief in the night. When the heavens will pass away with a roar and the the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done of it will be exposed. It's going to happen. You won't miss it. Trust him. He's patient. And you know what God is patient? Right now. And a lot more than I would ever be. Probably more than you'd ever be too. And so why does God put up with these blasphemers? Why does God put up with people who don't confess Christ as Lord? Who don't worship him, who just play with religious ideas and ideologies. Why is God patient with him? Because he's not done. He's redeeming a people for his name, he is building a kingdom. And he told his disciples that to be encouraged. Because for the most part, and as Jeremy prayed in his prayer, don't expect everybody to receive this, like, okay, well, this is great news. They, they didn't receive it very well from any of the prophets that went before. Certainly didn't receive it well with Christ. Yes, there are some. It's a small group in comparison. But the call is to believe and to, to pray and to preach. And God will bring about repentance. And so what do we do then? And Peter gives us a good uh, admonition on how to wait. Wait and that's why I chose this text, really. Since all these things, I'm at verse 11 of chapter 3. All these things are to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That's how you wait. Trust the Lord that he's going to accomplish it. Don't get caught up in all of these things things in the life yeah you'll have to be engaged in the world and different things that you have to do i understand but that's not where your hope and priorities are they're ultimately in christ and a call to the holiness is to be sanctified unto christ godliness is to live in a godward way exemplifying those beautiful attributes of who god is in our love joy peace fellowship with one another And then we're waiting, because it it, it hasn't happened yet. So we're waiting, as the text says, and hastening then for the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what I'm waiting for. What are you waiting for? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us the faith, truly wait for the fullness of your kingdom. May it begin in our own hearts as we submit to you in, in our own repentance and faith, sanctification and holiness, May we call others to see the beauty and the glory of who you are and call others to believe and pray for your kingdom to come in its full expression in the world in which we exist, a new world in which righteousness dwells. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take a moment now, beloved, where you're at to think on these things. Privately respond to Christ in the way he's spoken to you. Father, I pray that we would heed this admonition by Peter to, since we're waiting for these things, that we would be diligent to be found by Christ without spot, without blemish, and at peace. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Let's all stand and turn to 353.
2: I Know Whom I Have Believed, 353. dismissed now may the God of peace who brought again from our from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with every good thing that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever amen you're
0: dismissed.